Well, it's good to be here. We've actually visited probably four or five times over the course of the two years. I think of all the people that we coach, we have about 18 couples that we coach, and this is actually the closest one. We live down in Carlsbad, and so uh, this is the closest one that we like to return to and, and see the progress that God's made here with you folks. So it's good to be here for the first time to share God's word with you. And we're going to look at a passage in John 8. If you want to turn to that in your Bibles, if you want to pick up one of the blue Bibles, you'll find it on page 894. And it's one of the very familiar stories that we have in, in the Gospels about Jesus. There's several elements to this story, that several quotes that come from this story that are very familiar to us. But it begins this way. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Oh, let's stand up, please. I'm sorry. Let me read. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught, him, taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. May God bless his word to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this story, for the way in which you show yourself to us through your son, Jesus. We pray that we would see that clearly as we meditate on it here for a few minutes. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I wanted to begin by actually reading another story uh, to you that comes from the pen of Rick Riley. How many of you are familiar with the name Rick Riley? He was a sports writer for years for Sports Illustrated. And about 10 years ago, he switched over to ESPN, the magazine. And uh, my wife, who's not a really big sports fan, loves Rick Riley just because he's such a good writer. And uh, about 10 years ago, at the, in December of 2008, he wrote an article that I want to share with you this morning. And if you can think back that far to December of 2008, um, you might realize that that was not a real high point in our, uh, in our country at that time. And if you don't understand that, it's because you didn't have money in the stock market in, at the end of 2008. 2008 is when it just really tanked. And it was worth, you know, stocks were worth, the Dow Jones was about a third or maybe 40% of what it is now. Uh, and, and so all kinds of people had lost all kinds of value in their holdings. And it was just a very depressing sort of time. And in that context, Rick Riley wrote this article. He said they played the oddest game 
in high school football history last month in Grapevine, Texas. It was Grapevine Faith versus Gainesville State School, and everything about it was upside down. For instance, when Gainesville came out to take the field, the Faith fans made a 40-yard sprint line for them to run through. Did you hear that? The other team's fans. They even made a banner for players to crash through at the end. It said, go Tornadoes, which is also weird because Faith is the Lions. It was rivers running uphill and cats petting dogs. More than 200 Faith fans sat on the Gainesville side and kept cheering the Gainesville players on by name. Gainesville's quarterback uh, and middle linebacker Isaiah said this, he said, I never in my life thought I'd hear people cheering for us to hit their kids, <laughs> but they wanted us to. And even though Faith walloped them 33 to 14, the Gainesville kids were so happy that after the game, they gave head coach Mark Williams a sideline squirt bottle shower like he just won state. Gotta be the first Gatorade bath in history for an 0-9 coach. But then you saw. And I'm gonna stop right there and I'm gonna come back to the story a little bit later and tell you the end of it. When I do that to my congregations that I preach, they'd often get real upset at me. <laughs> say, why do you do that to us all the time? And I say, well, it's because I can. You know, sometimes it's just that easy. Um, but it's a gripping story. You're gonna be gripped by it, I think. And in one sense, it's kind of weird to use a gripping story to introduce another gripping story. This story in John 8 is about the most gripping story that we have in the Gospels, as far as I'm concerned. It's a story that uh, hits us at all different kinds of levels. There's all sorts of artwork, sermons, discussions that people have had over this particular account of the woman who's been caught in adultery and brought before Jesus. But we're going to see this morning that ultimately it's a story of grace and a story of hope. Um, but it's also a story of what I call third categories, and I'll explain that in a little bit. Um, there are in this story three major or, or main character groupings. I, I have to fumble with that because the first is this group of men, the scribes and, and the Pharisees that bring this woman to Jesus. That's the first group. The second a person is the woman herself, and the third is, is Jesus. And what I want to do this morning is just talk about this account um, from each of those perspectives and ask the question, what is the posture of the men and the woman and Jesus toward the woman? What is their posture toward him? So let me explain what I mean by that when we start with these men. I would say if you wanted to encapsulate, encapsulate uh, a very simple way of, of expressing what their posture is towards this woman, it would be simply no concern. They had no concern at all for her. The, the, the text tells us that their motivation was that they wanted to test Jesus. Or another way to put it was they wanted to trap Jesus. Uh, they wanted to put him, stick him on the horns of a dilemma that he could not get off of. They wanted to force him into an either or situation where there was no good answer. They were basically dragging her before him and, and saying to him, Jesus, are you going to keep the law, which says that we stone people who are caught in adultery, 
or are you going to be kind to this woman? Those seem to be the only two alternatives that Jesus was confronted here with because these men were not concerned about the woman. They simply wanted uh, to get to Jesus. Um, and so <coughs> Jesus's response to this is just uh, really, really precious. You know, as he hears these men make these accusations and sees the woman in front of him, it says that he bends over and he begins to write on the ground. He begins to write on the ground. And if I could summarize uh, what might be going through Jesus's mind at that point, it would be simply this. He was in effect saying to these guys, are you sure you want to go here? <laughs> are you sure you want to do this? And what exactly he wrote on the ground, it doesn't say. It's one of the great mysteries, you know, in the New Testament. What did Jesus write? You know, some people think that he maybe just doodled and, and you know, drew little circles and squares and other shapes waiting for these men to realize uh, the stupidity of what they were doing and the callousness of what they were doing. Other people theorize that maybe he started writing down the names of each of these men and, and then next to those names, attaching a sin to them that other people would have known. And in and, and so doing, he's sort of outing them in their sin at that point. But whatever it was that he, he was writing there in the ground, it caused them all to leave eventually one by one. Our response when we, we think about these men, if you're like me, there's just a lot of anger that you get uh, from this story towards those men, that they would, uh, they would be so callous and unconcerned about this woman. Um, when, when I read passages like this, one of the things I'm struck with is that often it's, it's hard for my, my Jewish friends to read this in the New Testament. So many times there's stories where the, the Jewish leaders are the bad guys in the New Testament. Think of the story of the Good Samaritan. It's the priest and the Levite that walk by and don't do anything, and it's, it's a Samaritan that comes and helps the Jewish brother. Uh, there's other stories of, of Jewish leaders that are, are, are just missing the point that Jesus is trying to make. And, and so whenever I talk about a story like this, one of the things that I like to do is, is take the emphasis off of the fact that it was the Jewish leaders and, and just say it was the religious leaders. It was the religious leaders of the day, the pastors, the missionaries, you know, whatever other religious leader there might be, it was those people that were bringing this woman to Jesus because Jesus was a threat to their organized way of going about religion. And they wanted to, again, impale him on the horns of this dilemma and, uh, and Jesus wouldn't have anything to do with it. But that's, I, and, and I'm more than willing, I should say this, to own that, that there are times as a pastor, as a religious leader, if you want to look at it that way, that I've fallen short of the kind of love that God wants me to have towards the needy. But what I also want you to see this morning is that it's important for you to put yourself in the role of those scribes and Pharisees as well. That it's not just leaders, but it's each one of us who bears the name of Christ as we interact with those who, um, who come into our path. I was thinking a while back that, um, you know, I've been in ministry for over 30 years and probably the first half of my ministry, um, my sphere of influence was sort of limited to the people that showed up at my church on Sunday morning. 
And now each one of you with a sign-in name and a password <laughs> has a sphere of influence that's global, literally. I mean, you can go on, you can pick your Instagram or Facebook or whatever social media you want to pick, and you can get on there and you can start talking about how you feel about certain things, and all of a sudden, you know, dozens, hundreds, maybe even more people are responding to you. Your sphere of influence or your, your connectedness is far greater than what I had for at least half of, of my particular ministry. And I think that we need to be careful, especially as we enter into those kinds of uh, opportunities that we represent the gospel, that we represent Christ well. Uh, when we talk about others, when we talk to others, uh, that, we, that we realize that when we inject our faith into those discussions, we're not just representing ourselves, but we're representing our Savior. We don't want to be caught with those who have no concern for other people. Now, the second person in this drama is this woman herself. I want to talk about her for just a little bit now because this is a woman who no doubt was guilty as charged. She was brought before Jesus. Uh, she was probably literally dragged out of bed and brought before Jesus. So she would have been disheveled. Uh, she would have been in a panic. Uh, just imagine what that would have been like uh, for this woman. And all of a sudden, Jesus responds to these guys by writing stuff in the ground. And then he looks up, and here's the good news. The good news is that all the men were gone. But here's the bad news. <laughs> now she's face to face with Jesus. And it's in church. You know, did you pick that up when we read it? This all happened in the temple. So she's face to face with Jesus in the temple, disheveled, having been accused of committing adultery, one-on-one -on -one with God, toe-to-toe. -to -toe. And what is her posture toward herself at that point? What would yours be? Well, for me, it would be no confidence. No confidence at all. And I don't know if you can identify with that or not. But earlier in the service today, we talked about uh, confessing our sin. We, we received forgiveness. We heard from Psalm 103 about uh, God's love being you know, greater than our sin and uh, expressing mercy to thousands upon thousands. And we confess those things in our hearts and in our minds. But are we really confident? If we were to place ourselves in the shoes of this woman, or she probably wasn't even wearing shoes, we were just in her situation, how would we feel at that point? Would we we'd be a little bit shaky? About 10 years ago, I had a, one of my most interesting pastoral calls in, in ministry. It was with a fellow named Jim who had uh, contracted cancer and was, it turned out to be the day that I visited him. It was just a few days before he finally died. And uh, Jim was a fellow that I had known over the years in different contexts. He, he'd uh, been involved a little bit in the church his daughter had. and He had followed at certain times. I'd done his daughter's wedding and all these sorts of things. And Jim came down sick, and I went to visit him. And as I talked with Jim, he was you know, in, in quite a bit of pain and, and uh, was just very generous to let me have that time with him. I, I said to Jim, could I... Jim, just go over the gospel one more time with you. 
uh, you know, there's no pretenses at that point. He knew his days were very, very limited. And I said, can I just remind you of some stuff? And he goes, yeah, I'd, lo I'd love for you to do that. And so for the next five minutes or so, I, I just shared again that, Jim, you know, you're about to cross over uh, and, and meet your maker. And, and when you meet your maker, uh, what are you going to hold up to him? Are you going to hold up all the things that you've done? Uh, all, and, and included in that is all the ways we've fallen short, all the ways we've sinned. Are you going to go in on your record or are you going to go in on the record of Jesus? That he lived for you, that he died for your sins. And, and I just encourage Jim with the truth of the gospel that you can be confident that because of what Jesus has done for you, you can, you can stand before the Lord and receive his grace. And I said, Jim, you know, when I finished, I said, Jim, is that, is that still what you believe? Do you have any questions about that? He goes, no, no questions. And yes, I, I still believe it. And then he paused for a moment, and I wasn't sure what he was going to say. But when he finally spoke, he said, I just hope it's not a bunch of BS. <laughs> Except he didn't use the abbreviation. <laughs> and... It was one of those moments, it was a very odd moment, you know, as, as a pastor standing there, but I knew Jim well enough to know that he had an armory streak in him, and he was probably just saying this is his last chance to get under my skin a little bit and make me feel uncomfortable, and I, I kind of laughed with Jim, and I said, yeah, you know, we all hope that, don't we, Jim? <laughs> we all hope that, that it's just not a bunch of BS in the end. But, you know, at one point, we're all going to have that encounter that this woman had, where we stand before God. And will you be confident then? Will you be confident toe-to-toe? -to -toe? Are you looking forward to that? And to whatever degree you would say, and eh, yeah, but oh, I'm not really sure how that's gonna work out. To whatever degree that latter thing is with you, you need to hear the words of Jesus here. Because what Jesus says to the woman is there is no condemnation. The men had no concern for her. She had no confidence in herself, but Jesus' posture towards the woman is no condemnation. No condemnation. I want you to see three things about the way that Jesus responds to her just in this last verse or so. One is that Jesus did not allow himself to be cornered into that either-or situation. Did you notice that? They're trying to, again, impale him on the horns of this dilemma. Are you going to keep the law or, or are you going to be kind? And, and Jesus has to find a way out of that dilemma uh, because they wanted him to do one or the other. If he said something against the law, they would come down on him real hard for subverting their faith. If, if he just was kind, they would... Um, uh, or or if, he, if he came down hard on the law, excuse me, that's what would happen if he was kind. If he came down on the law, he would come across as this real stern person that would chase people away rather than bring them toward himself. And so that's the dilemma he's trying to avoid. And when he sits down and, and, and writes on the ground and eventually all the men leave, what we realize is that Jesus was keeping the law at this point because there was a law in the Old Testament that, that said that adultery was a capital crime. But because it was a capital crime, it was important that there be at least two witnesses if someone was going to be accused of this. And so by kneeling down and writing in the ground, one of the things that Jesus accomplished was he emptied the courtroom <laughs> at that point. 
He emptied all those people. And so when he finally looks up, he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they're not here. And he says, well, then neither do I accuse you. And you know what Jesus is saying there is I, I wasn't an eyewitness. I didn't know what, uh, I didn't see what was going on. Uh, so I can't testify against you so your accusers are gone. So you see, Jesus really did keep the law in this uh, particular situation. And this idea of finding a third alternative or a third category I think is so important for us as, as Christians in our day today because you know as well as I do that in the, even in the last months, the last weeks, even this past week, there's issues coming up in our culture, in our society that, that are an attempt to put Christians at odds with other people. And we're often presented these kinds of situations where uh, it doesn't seem like there's a good answer to the situation. And I'm, I'm always encouraging the guys I coach, you've got, to, you've got to try to come up in a winsome way with third alternatives that are both unpredictable and provocative to people. Because that's what Jesus is doing here. He creates a third alternative that is unpredictable and it's provocative. It's provocative in the sense that it leads us into a, another discussion that will help people understand the gospel even more. And so I would encourage you uh, to, to think in those terms, even as people who come in contact with other people who might challenge your, your beliefs or challenge where you stand on certain issues. If you're like most churches and we were to um, put a number on this side of the stage and another number here and say, this is a one and this is a 10 and, and uh, you, you know, this is the most liberal positions you could take on anything and these are the most conservative positions. So come on up and, and stand where you think you are uh, on, the, on that continuum. Um, I, I would imagine that there would be, you know, a broad, a, a broad swath of, of uh, difference between you folks in some of these areas. But here's what I would say that wherever you find yourself on that, on that continuum, you ought to be living your life in such a way that you are provocative to people on your left as well as people on your right. Uh, if, if, you're, if you find yourself like in a very, on, on the more conservative end of things, there ought to be ways that you express your faith that cause those who are also at that point in the continuum to say, boy, that, you're sounding a little bit like the liberals on this particular issue. Uh, because Jesus would often sound kind of liberal on certain issues. And, and if you find yourself more on the liberal end, there ought, to be, there ought to be discussions you have with your liberal friends where they would say, boy, you're starting to sound like the conservatives. And then you have an opportunity in a provocative way to explain how your faith positions you where you can't be pigeonholed just into one of those places. Someone had asked me when I shared this illustration before, um, where would Jesus land on the continuum, you know? And my first thought was, well, he'd probably be, you know, right, right in the middle. He'd probably be at, at number five. But I kind of think that the way Jesus would approach that is he'd say, I'm not going to get on that line. <laughs> I'm not even going to engage in that. I'm not going to let you pigeonhole me that way. Uh, because my kingdom is not your kingdom. See, he came to do something far more radical than just shift the political influence in, in a political situation. He came to change the world and to inject a new kingdom. And so he wouldn't allow himself to be caught in the either or. Um, and, and he did keep the law. That's the second thing. And the third thing that I want you to see here is the importance of Jesus' words that he speaks to this woman. 
And, and it's not just the words themselves, but it's the order of the words that he speaks to the woman. It's the order. It's so, so important. Because what he says to you, to her, when he, when he says, where are your accusers? And she says, they're not here. And he says, then neither do I accuse you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He doesn't say, go and sin no more, and then maybe you can gain my approval. Maybe then you can gain, you can get out of that area of condemnation. Clean up your life and then come back. It's often how we look at our approach to God that we're not able to approach God on our own, and so we feel like, gosh, we have to clean things up before we can finally come to him. But what Jesus says is, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. In Peter's, one of Peter's letters, he tells us that the kindness of God leads us to repentance. Do you get the order there? It's not repentance gets us the kindness of God, but it's the kindness of God, it's the grace of God that leads us to change in our lives. And, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying here in John 8. I'm not going to condemn you. Now go and live in the freedom of that. Go and live in the joy of that. Go and live in the grace of that. The former, uh, the, the idea of don't sin and then you'll receive forgiveness is legalism. And the latter is the gospel. What Jesus says is the gospel. And if you get those flipped around, you're going to lose the gospel and you're going to lose Jesus. So don't do that because the first person it's going to bite is you. <laughs> it's going to bite you more than anyone else. The order of Jesus' words, no condemnation. So where are you this morning as you confront this passage? Where do you most identify uh, yourself with these men who are uh, accusing this woman? And, and, you know, by the way, another reason we know they had no concern was because there was no man that they brought before Jesus. Isn't that kind of weird too? I mean, we don't, we don't even hear about that in the, in the text, but uh, the Ten Commandments, there's many of them that we can handle okay just on our own. You know, We can disrespect our parents, we can steal, we can lie. But adultery is one of those where it kind of takes two, right? You don't just go out and do that on your own. And, and so if these men were really concerned about the law, there would have been another person there, but they weren't. They weren't concerned for her. Uh, they were only concerned uh, for their attack on Jesus. Where do you find yourself this morning then? Throwing stones or giving hope to people? Um, will it always succeed to find these third alternatives? Well, for Jesus, I think it, it succeeded every single time. You know, he, he had another encounter where people came to him and asked him, well, should we pay taxes or not? Remember that story? And remember what Jesus did? He said, well, show me a coin. You know, they showed him a coin. And he said, well, whose picture's on this? And they said, Caesar's. And he says, well, you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And you can almost see these guys walking away going, oh, I thought we had him, you know. And, and again, they're foiled. And this happened over and over again for Jesus, except for one time it didn't succeed. And the time that it didn't succeed wasn't because he wasn't smart enough to figure out what was going on or because he wasn't strong enough to avoid it or or he wasn't courageous enough. It was because he willingly gave himself at that point. You see, the final dilemma that he was stuck on was 
the fact that he came, he said, to be the savior of the world. And that involved living a perfect life, but also going to a cross to die a substitutionary death. And rather than avoid that controversy, rather than avoid that pressure, he willingly took it on himself so that you and I could hear those words someday from the Lord. Um, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. And if we're touched by the gospel, friends, what Jesus says to us is that we have no choice but to give what we have been given. And so as you hear this story and you resonate with the woman and you realize the grace that she was given, the life-changing day this turned out for, for her, uh, turned out to be for her, uh, as she was being dragged to church, uh, dragged to the temple, she probably wondered if she was going to survive the morning. And now she's giving, given a whole new lease on her life. Um, that's where you've come in your relationship with God. If you've embraced him as your savior of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to give what you've been given. Let me finish the story I started with earlier. Remember, it was about the two football teams and the fans of the one team were, and the parents were rooting for the other team. And the game was over. And Rick Riley says, then you saw. And what you saw were the 12, <clears throat> the 12 uniformed officers escorting the 14 Gainesville players off the field. And two and two started to make four. They lined up the players in groups of five, handcuffs ready in their back pockets, and marched them to the team bus. That's because Gainesville is a maximum security correctional facility 75 miles north of Dallas, and every game it plays is on the road. This all started when Faith's head coach, Chris Hogan, wanted to do something kind for the Gainesville team. Faith had never played Gainesville, but he already knew the score. After all, Faith was 7-2 and two going into the game, and Gainesville was 0-8 with two touchdowns all year long. Faith had 70 kids on the team, 11 coaches, the latest equipment, and involved parents. Gainesville has a lot of kids with convictions for drugs, assault, and robbery, many of whose families had disowned them, wearing seven-year-old shoulder pads and ancient helmets. So Hogan had this idea. He said, what if half of our fans, for one night only, cheered for the other team? And he sent out an email asking the faithful to do just that. Here's the message I want you to send, Hogan wrote. You are just as valuable as any other person on planet Earth. Some people were naturally confused. One faith player walked into Hogan's office and said, Coach, why are we doing this? And Hogan said, imagine if you didn't have a home life. Imagine if everybody had pretty much given up on you. Now imagine what it would mean for hundreds of people to suddenly believe in you. Well, the next thing you know, the Gainesville tornadoes were turning around on their bench to see something they had never seen before, hundreds of fans and actual cheerleaders. I thought maybe they were confused, said Alex, a Gainesville lineman. Only the first names are released by the prison. They started yelling defense when their team had the ball. And I said, what, they're cheering for us. And it was a strange experience for the boys who most people cross the street to avoid. We can tell people are a little afraid of us when we come to the game, said Gerald, a lineman who will wind up doing more than three years. 
You can see it in their eyes. They're looking at us like we're criminals. But these people, they were yelling for us by our names. And Riley says, maybe it figures that Gainesville played better than it had all season, scoring the game's last two touchdowns. Of course, this might have been because Hogan put his third-string nose guard at safety and his third-string quarterback at defensive end. Still, after the game, he said both teams gathered in the middle of the field to pray. And that's when Isaiah, the quarterback of Gainesville, surprised everyone by asking to lead. And Coach Hogan said, we had no idea what the kid was going to say. But Isaiah said this, Lord, I don't know how this happened, so I don't know how to say thank you, but I never would have known there was so many people in the world that cared about us. And it was a good thing, Riley says, that everybody's heads were bowed because they might have seen Hogan wiping away tears. As the tornadoes walked back to their bus under guard, they each were handed a bag for the road trip home. A burger, some fries, a soda, some candy, a Bible, and an encouraging letter from a faith player. The Gainesville coach saw Hogan, grabbed him hard by the shoulders and said, you will never know what your people did for these kids tonight. You will never, ever know. And as the bus pulled away, all the Gainesville players crammed to one side and pressed their hands to the window, staring at these people they'd never seen before, watching their waves and smiles disappearing into the night. And Riley concludes this way. He says, anyway, with the economy six feet under and Christmas running on about three and a half reindeer, <laughs> he says, it's nice to know that one of the best presents you can give is still absolutely free. And that's the gift of hope. The gift of hope. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that your life gave to us the gift of hope. That what you have done for us has rescued each one of us from that situation we would find ourselves in, just like the woman with no confidence before you by your words that we're loved and we're forgiven. And may we in the, in the joy and the confidence that you've given us in the gospel extend that same hope and confidence to others in your name. We pray these things.